Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off In-Depth Conversations in Applied Geophysics. In this episode, I speak with author Vladimir Grechka on his latest book, Anisotropy and Microseismics Theory and Practice. Vladimir highlights why anisotropy and microseismics are a great pairing, how the shift from P waves to shear waves changed the industry, and reflects on what we will find in seismology books in the next decade. This is a practical and insightful conversation that I know you will enjoy. Vladimir Grechka currently serves as a senior advisor at Borehole Seismic, focusing on novel uses of microseismic and VSP for reservoir characterization. He has received numerous awards throughout his celebrated career, including SEG's J. Clarence Karcher Award in 1997. For Vladimir's full bio, to read the book abstract, and to find the link to buy the book, visit seg.org forward slash podcast. Now for our conversation. Your last book, Microseismic Monitoring, was published only three years ago. Your new book is titled Anisotropy and Microseismics Theory and Practice. Before we get into the book, what inspired you to write another book so soon after your last book? Simple answer is uh, that I wanted to share with the world, with the community, my thoughts, and I have quite a bit of them after finishing uh, this microseismic monitoring book. I believe we, Werner Heigl and I, did not tell you, Andrew, about the story of how this microseismic monitoring book came into existence. So let me share it with you because this would explain why I began working on another book right after finishing the previous book. Okay, so the time frame was early 2014, and at that time I felt ready to write a book on microseismic. And I was anxious to the point that I could not even sleep. I would wake in the middle of the night and begin planning my book. And as if Werner felt my or knew my thoughts, he sent a message to me Hey, Vladimir. Would you like to write a book on microseismic together? And my answer was emphatically yes. And so we met next day. And to my surprise, Werner pulled out a table of content of that unwritten book from his pocket. And the story of that book, the microseismic monitoring book, was extremely clean. So it uh, follows a passage of seismic wave from a microseismic source triggered by hydraulic stimulation through the formations. And by the time the wave reaches receivers, it tells its story, it tells about its source, it tells about the rocks surrounding its passage. And so we began working on this book and because uh, the storyline was extremely clean and clear, I could not really put pieces in that book I meant to, to put, okay, because this would be uh, disturbing for the storyline. And so it took about two years to, to finish uh, my microseismic monitoring book. And then after it was published, I felt that I have enough material and enough untouched things to begin doing a new book. And at that time, I was so comfortable and so accustomed to writing. And I loved the activity. So, so it uh, naturally flowed to my next book. Well, let's now turn to this latest book. 
Why did you decide to pair anisotropy and microseismics in the same book? You know, it was very natural because uh, let, let me step a, a little bit back and tell you how anisotropy came into seismic practice. It wasn't because, you know, geophysicists wanted uh, to be fancy and wanted to do something beyond the isotropic model that uh, they have been doing for decades. Uh, the reason had to do with acquisition of seismic data. And anisotropy is primarily the dependence of seismic velocities on direction. And as our acquisition geometries opened up the directional aperture, either by acquiring long spread data or by acquiring multi-component or wide azimuth data, the data we, are, we were acquiring were sensitive to anisotropy. And then to improve the quality of our seismic products, people began incorporating anisotropy in, in the, their processing flows and in the resulting products. Now, the influence of anisotropy on those products depends on the magnitude of that anisotropy, of how strong anisotropy is. It is well known that hydrocarbon-bearing shales are among the stronger anisotropic formations than other formations. And therefore, if you are doing downhole microseismic in which waves propagate through those highly anisotropic formations, it is very natural to account for anisotropy. And as far as I know, today, all downhole microseismic processing workflows include anisotropy in one way or another. So why is there a renewed interest from the industry in seismic anisotropy? It is because, again, the quality of seismic products benefits from accounting for anisotropy and from understanding it and from building anisotropic velocity models. There are kinds of data that you simply cannot process isotropically. One example of those data would be recording of shear waves in which oftentimes we see shear wave splitting. And once you see to those shear waves, slow shear and fast shear arriving at different times, there is no way you can build isotropic velocity model to account for both those arrivals because those waves would not split in isotropic media. So if you are insisting on doing isotropy, you would be not only ignoring part of your data, which is not really a good thing to do, but you would also be acting against your observations because your observations tell you that your subsurface is anisotropic. And the best thing to do is to build models that include this observed reality. You know, speaking of shear waves, what is the importance that downhole microseismics make by shifting the focus from P waves to shear waves? Or, you know, it is, it is very simple because... In downhole microseismic, we operate with natural sources. Our main sources are naturally occurring microseismic events. Those events produce wave fields that are dominated by shear waves. Those sources that are mostly double couple sources or engineers often call them shear sources, they 
excite much stronger shear waves than they excite P waves. And therefore, as geophysicists, we would like to work with the best signal-to-noise ratio portion of our data and therefore importance of shear waves. We don't want to ignore the good quality data that we are recording. And we work with both P and S waves. So do theoreticians, developers, users of microseismic data processing software, do they need to forget all they know to adjust their work towards shear waves? No, they need to incorporate shear waves in their workflows if they say if they if they are in downhole microseismic or if they are doing VSP or if they are working with multi-component data with any with any data that record shear waves. So it is not about ignoring what you know. It is about expanding your toolbox to be able to work with different kinds of data and benefit from information provided by those different types of wave modes. You have a a wonderful format in this book where most chapters start with a question followed by what's exciting about it, where the mystery might lie, and then what could be the potential value of answering this question. Why are asking the right questions so important for the geophysicist? Let me answer this question in a broader content. Asking the right question is important not only for geophysicists. It is important for humanity in large, as if it is a really good question. Let me give you two examples. One, outside geophysics, and the other, geophysical example. The first example is the invention of light bulb by Thomas Edison. Okay, it all started from a question, can we create a stable source of bright light? And the answer was this invention of light bulb. Now, 100 plus years after, we don't really illuminate our houses with candles anymore. And when we switch our lights, we don't even think about this invention. So it became a part of our life and it changed human lives dramatically. Just just as one example, working 24 hours in shifts became possible, right? Because because, uh, you come to your workplace and you don't really care whether it is night or day, you you illuminate your workplace uh, the the way you have to. And there are numerous, numerous examples uh, of how this artificial lighting changed uh, the the way societies function. But let me let me go closer to to geophysics and let me give you another example that does relate to us to to geophysicists. And uh, this example uh, comes from uh, the recognition sometime early in the 20th century, that fossil energy is important for society. At that point, the society, especially in developed countries, learned how to turn this fossil energy into wealth. It was done through replacing human labor by different machinery that would use this fossil energy as fuel. And the 
demand was growing. And sometimes after World War II, it became clear that those oil fields that were discovered early in the, in the first part of the 20th century get depleted. And so the question asked was, can we devise or develop a reliable method for discovering new oil fields? And this is how seismic prospecting was born. And thousands of people who were involved in this activity in developing the method, in applying the method, and finally discovering those oil fields that our lifestyle required, demanded, benefited, benefited from this question of, can we develop a reliable technology for discovering new oil fields? And we can discuss, we can debate whether invention of light bulb or the use of energy by our society is more influential. But it is clear that those both inventions, and they were inventions, right, because they did not exist before, they had to be invented, they started with appropriate questions. And those were just great questions. Well, speaking of, of great questions, what question were you most excited to explore in writing this book? You, you mentioned, Andrew, that uh, each of my chapter starts with a question. And frankly, I am excited about all of them because, because I would not, I have my freedom to write about anything I want, and I would not write about things that don't excite me. But to answer your question, let, let me pick out uh, one, one particular question. And this could be a question that uh, appears in the preface to, to my, my book. And the question is this, can a point source located in a homogeneous, elastic, and isotropic solid excite a wavefront that would exhibit finite size planar areas, planar patches. And ju ju just let me step back to, to kind of a little bit unpack this question. So suppose you throw a piece of rock in a pond in water and you see circles. Circles have curvature. They have non-zero curvature. They don't have planar patches, planar finite size patches. And so my question was about, about whether those patches are possible. Apparently, no one asked that question before or not in, in this particular formulation, because if someone did, well, there would be in the literature and, um, you know, I would not be asking this question again. But so since I asked this question and I was curious about, about that, I found conditions under which those finite size patches exist finite size uh, planar patches exist on the wavefronts. And all those dice and, uh, and the pyramid and the cylinder on the cover of my book are the examples of those wavefronts. Those are actually wavefronts exhibiting planar patches. And so I kept digging into it. And then what I discovered was very interesting. It, ha it has to do with seismic sources. You know that seismic sources, each particular seismic source have so-called so silent directions, silent areas. For example, for microseismic sources, they are called nodal planes. Those are directions in which certain types of waves are not excited. As another example, air, air gun and water doesn't excite shear waves. Okay, A feature of those 
finite size planar patches is that any source excites all kinds of waves at those patches. One of my reviewers, Yuri Ivanov, when he read that, I guess he was so excited about this finding that he generated a synthetic for me that shows how this uh, planar patch on the wave front illuminates with his source. So this is one of those interesting questions that I explored. And I would not be surprised if this finding will find place in seismology textbooks in, in a couple of decades. Well, it's exciting to think about as more people get, have the time and, and are able to access your book, what what things they come up with that you inspire them. You know, is there is there a chapter whose question feels to you most unanswerable right now? Yes, and thank you for asking this question. Uh, the title of this chapter is Nonlinear Polarization and Dispersion of Plane Waves. And I understand that it is mouthful. So let me let me unpack it. If I were writing a, a detective novel, this title could be as well something like how geophysicists react to the presence of unknown. Okay. And so let me give you an example of what we are talking about here. The most detailed measurements that we as exploration and development geophysicists make is a sonic lock. Okay. Sonic lock uh, is for us, for seismologists, is a record of velocity and, and density along a well bore. And it is typically sampled at half foot increment. Okay. So we have a table, suppose we have a vertical well, then after logging it, we have a table that has those values of P and S wave velocities and density at an increment half a foot. When we want to use this measurement to propagate waves through this kind of model, we have to infill between the measurements. Okay, we need to know for the modeling purposes and then for inversion purposes, what is the velocities between those measurements. For example, you might want to upscale this measurement at increment of half foot to say one inch or one tenth of an inch. You want to upscale it. So how do we do it? Well, the standard approach is to make, make it constant. So all those intervals between our measurements are filled with constant velocity and density values. And when people do it, it is so routine and it is so ingrained in our practice, they don't even think about it, okay? They just use piecewise constant interpolation between those measurements. Now, this interpolation completely resides in the null space because we don't know what those values are. We, we just don't have measurements of them. So what I did in the chapter was to say, well, what if we infill those empty blocks, those gaps with piecewise heterogeneous velocity function? And I chose a function for which I can solve the wave equation in terms of plane waves. Okay. And now we have two velocity model. One is stepwise homogeneous and the other is stepwise heterogeneous that fit our sonic log data perfectly well. They go through the same measurements precisely. But for wave propagation, it turns out that those models are drastically different. 
For example, our standard model predicts linear polarization of body waves and non-dispersive velocities, meaning that velocities of waves do not depend on the wave frequency. Whereas the model that have those, those piecewise heterogeneous layers says that polarization of body waves should be nonlinear and the velocities should be dispersive, meaning the velocity becomes a function of frequency. Now, is there a ground truth? And that ground truth could, for example, come from hadagram analysis of microseismic measurements. And I believe everyone who has done it knows that the recorded particle motion, for example, at a half period of arrival or during a period of a body wave arrival is nonlinear. There could be some special cases when it looks like linear, but, but overall it is just nonlinear. What do we do as geophysicists? Well, we have our standard model that says that it should be linear. Well, we just fit a straight line through this uh, nonlinear particle motion and call that straight line a polarization. I am not saying that one approach is better than the other. I am saying that this model that operates in the null space creates certain expectation of our data. And our data do not necessarily obey this expectation. Another interesting thing is now suppose that we want to conduct a vertical seismic profiling study over this our sonic log that we have. So we have a source at the Earth's surface and that excites a downgoing wave along our vertical wellbore. And now we, we have two models in which we can calculate this wave field, this downward propagating wave field. Again, one model has constant velocity layers and the other model has heterogeneous velocity layers. And again, they go through exactly the same measurements of our well law, of our sonic law. And then what we find is that the behavior of wave propagating, waves propagating in our two models are macroscopically different. They are different in terms of travel times of arrivals of those waves once they, once they propagate sufficiently far, say a few thousand feet. And again, this is, uh, this is absolutely puzzling question for me, and it is a disturbing question to me because we essentially shape our world by our models without really interrogating the validity of uh, those models at, at a deeper level. I don't know whether this question would be answered to any satisfactory level, but I think just awareness of what we are doing, sometimes unconsciously, is very important. Yeah, those are important questions and ideas that you're bringing up there. And I, I want to kind of continue looking at things from a 30,000-foot view. You state in your book that MATLAB and LaTeX have really supported your professional development and curiosity. What do you think is most important for a geophysicist right now to focus on? Well, I think it wouldn't be MATLAB and it wouldn't be LaTeX because it is no secret to anyone that our geophysical industry and geophysical profession are in crisis. And I think the most important thing for geophysicists who are still employed in the oil industry is to demonstrate their value every day 
to do their utmost best to show their employers that what they are doing is critical. And hopefully there will be a recovery down the way. And hopefully those numerous geophysicists who have been laid off and who are now looking for jobs will get their jobs. So I think the most important thing is to stay relevant and to show your value. If you could speak directly to the CEO of an oil and gas company, what would you like them in particular to keep in mind during this time? Well, I'm obviously not an advisor to any CEOs, and uh, they also know that the uh, oil industry is in crisis. Again, they, there is no secret. It suffices to look at the market capitalization of companies over the interval of, say, 10 or 5 years to see, to see what's going on. And if they are in survival mode, and I believe many of them are, it is very little I can suggest because they know all the tools and layoffs are one of those tools. And they know what, what to do to keep their companies afloat. But I would like to switch the view and look at that from somewhat higher, higher perspective. What is the value proposition? What is uh, the mission of, of the oil industry? We know what it has been in the in decades, and it was providing affordable energy to the society. Unfortunately, it had a drawback. Unfortunately, it also creates excessive amount of CO2, and all the fires wildfires that range around the world could be taken as evidence of that. And that means that the mission perhaps has to be revisited. And the mission should change from just producing energy to improving the quality of human lives. And if you see your mission that way, perhaps you might begin providing incentives to your employers to buy electric cars or to install solar panels on the roofs of their houses and doing things in, in, in that domain. And of course, anyone could argue that, uh, you know, doing, doing solar panels or electric cars is not the business of oil companies. And it is not a business if you see yourself as energy producer. But if you see yourself is your why, if your reason for existence is the improvement of human life, you might as well will be doing those things and other things. This would be my, my thought. Well, that is a great place to leave it. I appreciate your thoughtful responses to these questions. Your book has a, you have a wonderful writing style and I'm excited that you took the time to write this book and share it with the world. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast, Seismic Sound Off. SEG produces these episodes to benefit its members, the geophysics community, and inform the public on the value of the science. To show your support for the show, please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this show. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. Go to the website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all the episodes and learn how you can subscribe for free directly on your phone.
Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Gary at 51 Features. The SEG podcast team is Ted Bacomjan, Jennifer Crockett, Ali McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.